Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. This reading comes from Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Harithor, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Harioth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into a dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and the horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back into place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. None of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of Egyptians, and, and Israel saw the Egyptians dying, lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. The next reading comes from Hebrew chapter 11, verse 29. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Amen. Quite an intense story, that one, isn't it? When you actually look at it. Now, um, before we go there, the story's got a lot of characters in it, but before we go there, um, I want to do a little bit of, uh, of scene setting and um, a couple of things. So first of all, to prepare for this sermon, as part of the preparation last week, I, I took the youth and I asked them for their insights on Exodus 14. And so today I'm going to make sure that I give you their insights and thoughts on Exodus 14 because I've got to give honour to them and they're not here to be able to hear what I have to say about them, so that'll be good. Um, but also... Before I go there, I, I want to think about the sort of situations that we face in life. Now, we often at church here, we, have, uh, uh, we often use something called Mentimeter to do a uh, survey and people online participate and everything else. I haven't set up a Mentimeter today. Um, I, I have to admit, one of my t struggles is I get a little bit cynical about things sometimes. Has anyone ever noticed that? Who knows me? I get cynical. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Sheree. Um, and, you know, when it comes to a Mentimeter, when somebody pops up a question, there's three ways to answer the question, aren't there? The first is to answer, the, answer it with the, um, the answer that you think the person wants from you. Yes? That's a, sort of the right answer. Um, a second, of course, is to tell the truth and give your honest answer. And a third is, of course, to stir the pot a little bit and put up some rogue, completely wrong answer just to see how people react when somebody reacts completely the wrong way. Does anybody ever do that? No? Oh. Ah, Alex, yes, thank you. I'm so glad that there's somebody else who does that. Anyway, so today I thought, I'm going to ask you a question, but rather than actually sharing it with everyone else and putting up a chart, just what you do wherever you are, just to reflect on it, just a little bit um, as we go through. And the, and the question I've got right at the outset is, what do you admire most in a person? Now, you're not answering it for the chart, so there's no point in stirring the pot because the only pot you're stirring is yours. I'll give you some hints, you know, some suggestions, but you can think about what is it you admire most in a person? Think of someone you admire and what is it you admire most? Is it maybe their good looks? You know, I mean, good looks, I mean, they count for a lot. I mean, have you ever, you know, well, actors, intelligence, it's always helpful, athleticism. We admire our athletes in Australia, don't we? 
Did you hear that we're sending over our largest ever Commonwealth Games um, athletics team? You can tell how much Australia values athletes because we plough a whole heap of taxpayer dollars for people to go and jump over hurdles and run around tracks. Seems like a great use of money to me. I'm, I'm giving away my biases, aren't I? Um, maybe uh, self-control and uh, patience. You admire that in a person. You wouldn't be admiring me at that point, especially not behind the wheel of a car. Maybe singing or musical ability. Uh, my wife put this on my brain, so I actually chucked it in the list because she uh, begged me to make sure that the microphone was off while we were singing one of the songs just to make sure that we didn't drive the church demented. A sense of humour. That's really cool. Um, business acumen and success. Well, is, that, is that in the list somewhere? Or maybe, on the other hand, generosity. You know, somebody who's really generous and, and, and shares everything they've got. Or contentment, resilience, perseverance in times of adversity. That's, now, that sounds like a pretty good one, doesn't it? That's one of those right answers, you know, where you go, tick, yep, yeah, that's the right answer. Or a willingness to sacrifice themselves to help others or save others. So just think about it for a moment. What is it that you admire most in a person? I haven't gone through a comprehensive list there. I'm sure that there's lots of other attributes we can go through. But while you're thinking about that, let's think about the fact. Well, first of all, not all of these are exclusive. It is possible for a good-looking, financially successful person to be simultaneously generous and patient and kind and a good singer and play musical instruments and we'd all hate them. Because, well, let's face it, they're perfection, right? I, I've often said, can you imagine, actually, I think one of the worst things to have been born in this life, if you were going to be born into a family, possibly the worst role to be born into could have been one of Jesus' siblings. Your, your, your brother is perfect. How can you argue with that? How can you even, how can you have a family fight and come out on top if your sibling is always perfect. Why can't you be more like Jesus? Oh, because you're my father, Joseph. Ooh, that's a bit biting. Anyway, so yes, but there are three different types of characteristics in that list that I gave out anyway. Some of those are temporary. So um, no matter how good looking you are, at some point, you're going to get old and you're not going to be as good looking as you were. I hate to say it. It doesn't matter. What does the Bible say? Beauty is fleeting. You know, enjoy it while it lasts because it's just like the flower. Comes one season, it's gone the next. And by the time you've seen 50 seasons, well, good luck. Um, others are attributes you cannot control. So like your athleticism and various other qualities that we have as people, and good looks you can't really control either, although some people do a good job of um, paying surgeons to give them a red-hot go. But, you know, there are attributes you cannot control. And so it's not a real credit to you to have an attribute, like, you know, is it really a credit to you that you happen to be born with reflexes five times faster than anyone else? I mean, it's a credit to you to use it, that's good. And others are behaviours or things that you choose to do. 
Now, generally speaking, and I've reached the sort of advanced age where my children, um, well, they, they actually have stopped calling me this, but they used to call me a dinosaur. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, when you think about it, you go to a few funerals over time, and what do you hear about at a funeral? You, you don't generally hear at a funeral, oh, wow, you know, what I really admire most about this person was that they were so good-looking. Usually what comes up is people reflect on, on the best qualities of their character. It's not particularly trendy at a funeral to reflect on the worst qualities of somebody's character. Um, there's a side of me that would like to see that in a funeral. But anyway, that's, that's just wrong. Um, but, but usually what you do is you reflect on the best qualities of somebody's character to say, hey, this is what this person was like and this is what I want to remember and choose to remember about this person. Yeah? So, we now live in interesting times. We live in times when it's challenging, and it's particularly challenging at times to be a Christian, isn't it? Certainly in Australia. Um, uh, I know that um, Ian talked the other day about the census results that talked about the number of people who profess Christianity is, uh, is going down, or at least the number of people who say it in a census. Um, but more than that, there's actually a bit of an overt hostility at times towards people expressing Christianity. I mean, if you want to kill a conversation, all right, there's a really good way to get somebody to go, is that the time? I think I've got to go. Uh, and that is to start bringing, oh, yeah, what do I do? Oh, I went to church on Sunday and, uh, hey, I'd like to talk to you about the sermon. Yeah, right, see you later. Adios. Uh, you know, it, it's not really a popular thing anymore. And there's a reason, and that's because Christianity is now seen, or being particularly Christian, is now seen as being the narrow-minded, uh, you know, certainly uncool sort of view on life, out of step with science, um, you know, and quite often, you know, you can see various attributes that people will, uh, caricatures, if you like, that people have of what Christians are like. I mean, even look around at church in terms of attendances, you know, people, who, who, people aren't coming to church as much. And even for us as a church, one of the big debates that we have at times or discussions is how are we going to get younger people to come to church? We have a few younger people who come to church and that's fantastic that they're so willing to put us up with some of us old fogies. But um, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it, that we have this great challenge where in reality we don't have a significant proportion of people who choose to gather together to worship God on a Sunday morning. That's, that's simply not a popular thing. And one of the things we're trying to work out is, well, how do we change church? Can we be more attractive? Can we find ways of, of doing things better? But I, I suspect it's a little deeper than just doing things better, but I think we do need to have those conversations. Now, we might go, well, that's, what's that got to do with Exodus? What's all of this got to do with um, Exodus 14? I want to talk today about how we reconcile faith with really, really big challenges that we face. 
See, in Exodus 14, the context of this was that the Israelites, after hundreds of years of being slaves in Egypt, had finally escaped. Moses, um, who had actually been really uh, a part of Pharaoh's household and, uh, you know, educated in all the ways of Egyptians and leadership and everything else along those lines, came back to the Jewish people and became the leader who God used to set them free. And there were a series of miracles in Egypt and there was this whole contest of wills between Pharaoh and Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And there were some pretty shocking things that happened, the various plagues that happened, and finally the, uh, the, the, the massacre um, that happened, the final steps, the 10th plague, where the firstborn son of every household that didn't have the blood of the Passover lamb um, on, on the door went through. And then Moses led the people, led the slaves, the Israelites, out of a life of slavery and into freedom. And then the Bible records that um, God, as we saw there, more or less deliberately, well, deliberately, not more rather than less, deliberately then sent the people on this journey through the desert and pinned them up against, between a sea and a pursuing army, because after Pharaoh had let the Israelites go, he thought, well, why, would I let, why, why, would I, why have I let them go? I liked having slaves. Let me, let me pursue them. And then we get this amazing situation where the Israelites are pinned up against the sea with the world's most powerful army pursuing them, You've got Pharaoh with his chariots and his army who's like, oh, I've got the best army in the world and I'm going to capture them. And you've got Moses, the leader, having a conversation with God about it. And what I see in this account of what has happened is a lot of lessons for us, hopefully today. And hopefully we'll be able to go through those and plant a few seeds of thought into our minds. So let me start off with Hebrews chapter 12, if I can, please. So yeah, uh, so where I've got, got this. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, which logically enough follows from Hebrews chapter 11, um, it starts off by reflecting on Hebrews 11, and it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, which is a list of heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And in verse 2 it says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. All right? So let's think about this. So faith has something to do with this. What is faith? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, so going back up, backwards one chapter, the Bible says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. You know, when you think about faith in this general definition, you realise there's a lot more people who are faithful than you think. There's a lot of people who are faithful about things. I, I had this discussion with a friend of mine who is 
uh, still an atheist. I have an ongoing conversation with this friend of mine who's still an atheist. That's one of those things. As a person who's an ex-atheist, and the point that I made was that atheism is actually a position of faith. You know, at the end of the day, you're taking a view about something that you cannot absolutely prove to say that there is no God. And just as we are in the position where we have not personally seen Jesus, although many of us have personally encountered him through the Spirit, just as we have not personally seen, it's a position of faith to say that there is no God. And, and he didn't like that much. It was an interesting discussion to talk about that. And I said, you know, really, in reality, you're putting your faith in something. Everybody, to some extent, puts their trust in something. Every day, we put our trust in, uh, uh, well, in actually other people. When we turn the power on, we're putting the trust in the actions of the various people who generate electricity and put up the power lines and the electricians who install it in our home that we don't get electrocuted that the power supply runs at a properly regulated fashion, that the right amount of current arrives at your house so that when you hit that switch, it's not 2,000 amps flowing through that switch and into your body, right? You have faith because you do it every single day. You go, bang, it'll work, no problems. And in fact, it'd be, it's quite considered quite shocking if somebody gets electrocuted. Bad pun, terrible Oh, uh, anyway, I shouldn't have said that. Um, you know, we have this... Uh, everybody has some, some level of faith. What the Bible talks about, of course, is us putting our faith in Jesus, putting our faith in God. And in Hebrews 11, the whole of chapter 11 is about examples of faith which are designed to help us to actually have confidence in the faith that we put in towards God. And in Hebrews 11.29, one of the examples is the parting of the Red Sea. And if we go to Hebrews 11.29, it says, By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So that's why we're here. So what is it that God wants us to take from the Scripture? What is it the Scriptures tell us to take out of the Scripture? Well, ultimately, it's about us getting the faith and confidence in God. So this is where I'm going to deviate slightly and say, well, so I, I, I took this to the youth and I said, well, what do you get out of this Scripture? What do you get out of Exodus chapter 14? What do you get out of this account of where essentially... Um, uh, the Egyptians effectively are provoked into following and trying to reclaim their slaves and they get drowned. And, and it was interesting. It was an interesting discussion. What was the first answer that came back? Well, you're dealing with 14-year-olds. What do you reckon it's going to be? It's going to be provocative. All right, they came back with genocide. That's it, genocide. God killed all the Egyptians, he manipulated them into the situation and God just wiped out those poor Egyptian soldiers. That was, that was a provocative position. I like that in, I like that in youth. It's a fantastic sort of thing to have. It's a great conversation opener. Um, but it's also got a, ger a germ of truth in it, doesn't it? That's a bit uncomfortable. 
Because we sit there and we go, well, hang on a second. God did engineer this situation. God did put the Israelites against the Red Sea. Very interesting position. What else do you get out of it, you know? What else do you get out of it, I asked. <laughs> you know, just because you want to you have something else other than genocide, I'd hope. Um, and one of the things that they talked about was um, the fact that Pharaoh thought that his army was particularly strong, but it wasn't as strong as the water, you know? Which I think was a parallel for it wasn't ultimately as strong as God. Yes? And I think that that's an interesting part of this story, isn't it? Um, and we put this in the newsletter that was sent around yesterday because I was late in giving Nathan the information. You know, in that story right here, you've got three distinct views on where people are putting their confidence, right? The Israelites had put their confidence in Moses and they said, Moses, you've, set, you've let us out. And when they felt like they were trapped, what, who did they turn on? They turned on Moses. And I love the particular line that they've got in Exodus 14, 11. Um, in Exodus 14, 11, what does it say? They said to Moses, was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? I love that, you know, just that completely defeatist mindset that they've got right there. Um, right then and there, they're saying to Moses, we're stuffed and we want you to know that before we die, we're blaming you. Just, just because we want to feel good and justified before we die. Just, just, just FYI. I'm sure Moses felt great about that. But at the same time, Pharaoh was putting his confidence in his soldiers. He, he felt strong and powerful because he had all of these resources under his control. He could say to his chariots, go pursue, and they made impressive sounds and the hooves were beating and the polished whatever brass was shining in the sun. Everything looked good. I mean, there's nothing quite like a good military parade, is there? Man, they look good in uniform, they parade, they look strong, they look powerful. I mean, there's a reason why every dictator to this day likes to parade the soldiers. It's like saying, hey, look, I am powerful, I matter, I can take you on and I can take you down because I am tough and I can prove I'm tough. Look at all these soldiers they've got fighting for me. You know, that's, that's actually the, 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 where Pharaoh had his confidence. And then on the other hand, you've got Moses. And what did Moses do? Moses said to the Israelites, chill out, God is in control God will deliver us, and God will send us through. And in fact, we all know that that's actually what happened. But we come back to this really, really difficult thing that I started off with when I was talking about it, which is what the youth identified, which is that, hang on, God's engineered this whole situation. What, what, what do we do with that? What do we get out of that? And the answer is we get out of it that God is fully in control. We've just gone through two years plus of a pandemic, and guess what? It's still going on. Do you reckon that that happened outside of God's control? Like, you know, there, there was a bit of an inquiry to say, well, where did the virus come from? And of course, you know, 
nobody really knows. Did it come from a lab? Did it come from a bat? Did it come from a pangolin? Did it come from... Who knew what a pangolin was before all of this, by the way? Anybody? I hadn't... You knew what a pangolin, pangolin was? I did not. I had never even heard of a pangolin before. You know? Was it a pangolin that ate a bat? You know? We don't know. But we do know, really. At the end of the day, this pandemic has happened... If you believe in God, and you believe that God is... Because God has, at the very least, allowed it to happen. At the very least. And you go, well, that's pretty huge. There's a lot of people who've gotten sick, a lot of people who've died. There's a lot of people whose mental health has suffered as a result of this pandemic. How do we... How do we reconcile our view of a loving, caring, generous God with a with with the terrible things that are going on in the world around us. When we look at this passage in Exodus, where it is all set up, that there is this, you know, situation where the Egyptian army is pursued, couldn't God, instead of hardening Pharaoh's heart, couldn't God have simply, you know, made Pharaoh's heart softer and Pharaoh could have gone, hey, I shouldn't have had slaves in the first place, Let, let it all go? Couldn't God have just done that? And then you wouldn't have needed this amazing story of an escape through the Red Sea, would you? Why? And that was the next bit that the the, um, youth came back with, is why doesn't God just set it up to work properly in the first place? It's a good point, isn't it? Why is the world so messed up? Why do we have so many problems? Why did he allow us to go so far astray? It's messed up. And if you believe in God, then by definition, you believe and put your faith in someone who has messed it up. I mean, we demand accountability of our leaders, don't we? Isn't that right? That's why we have elections. Adios, you're incompetent. Let's put in the next one. A few years later, adios, you're incompetent, let's put in the... That's what we do. We have accountability on leaders. I mean, I'm, I'm even big on talking, you know, when we've got inflation going up at the moment, you look at the price of groceries and every so often I'll get caught up in an economics debate because that's my particular thing. I love getting into an economics debate. Nothing quite like it. Nobody can prove you're right. Nobody can prove you're wrong. So it's just how sh- who, who shouts the loudest. Um, And I'll say, you know, the Reserve Bank's to blame. They printed all of this money, they gave everyone low interest rates, and that's why they, you know, you get these interesting debates. They should be accountable. And then the Governor of the Reserve Bank actually admitted it the other day. Um, But then we demand accountability. We demand that leaders take responsibility. So shouldn't we demand the same of God? God has messed it all up. Very interesting perception from the youth, isn't it? Everyone now is going, okay, Rodney. Okay, that's the end of the sermon. (laughs) No, 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 okay, I, I will go on from there. This is at the core of what we have to grapple with as Christians. Is if you believe that everything is created and that everything is under God's control, you believe that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. But the only reason he needed to was because God set it up that way in the first place. 
the big challenge for us, isn't it? So I invite you to think about what the alternative is. What would be the alternative for God? How else should God set it up? And this is the discussion we ended up going on to last week. Didn't get into enough depth, but how else could God have set it up? He could have made it so that Adam and Eve could only make the right choice. He could have made sure that instead of just the voice of the serpent there, you know, you, you know those cartoons where you've got the voice of the good angel and the voice of the bad angel on each shoulder? That's, this is old-style cartoons, right? One's the voice of temptation, the other voice of good. The thing that's interesting in the account of Genesis is there was no voice of good in Eve's ear, was there? There was just that, you know, God had made his statement to Adam. Adam had passed it on to Eve, presumably, and then the serpent comes up and says, hey, that fruit, that's pretty tasty, looks good, you'll get the knowledge of good and evil. God doesn't want you to have it because then you'll become like God, but once you become like God, you are it. You'll be it in a bit. But there was no voice on the other side, was there? Why didn't God put a voice on the other side? Just before taking the... No, don't do this. This is going to destroy your life. You're going to introduce death and sin and your pain in childbirth will increase and everything else is really going to go down. It's going to become really bad. Why didn't God do that? Because ultimately, everything comes down to choice. If you want to have any kind of real relationship, and God's goal for us is so big, it's all about everyone having a real relationship with God. God doesn't want us to enter into the relationship as his robots, as people who have no choice as to what to do. He doesn't even want to enter into the relationship as coerced robots. He wants us to make a genuine choice that we want to be with him. And in order to do that, God has set things up so that there is a choice between good and evil. You see, evil does not exist in its own right. Evil only exists because of the perversion of something good. This is something that C.S. Lewis wrote, which I think is really, really powerful. It only exists as the perversion of something good. Lies only exist because they are a distortion of the truth. Yes? Ego only exists because there is a capability or something that you can achieve that was intrinsically good. Lust and immorality only exist because there is a good feeling of pleasure that is inherently good. You see, everything that is bad is a corruption of something that is good. And God, in his incredible wisdom, says, if I am to have a relationship with what I've created, I have to give a choice, the ability for that which I've created to do evil, to act and corrupt the very good things that I've made. And that is what we are living in today. And so when the Bible talks about God has caused this, this is exactly true. You read the book of Job, and the book of Job 
is one of the most insanely ridiculous books ever because Job is faithful and is brought down at the invitation of God, at the selection of God. When Satan says, hey, you know, people only follow you because you, you know, because you, do, you protect them. It's a really powerful thing. And God says, no, it's about choice. It's about choice. And you read the book of Job, and there are the people who come to comfort Job in his distress. When he's sitting there and his house has been destroyed, his family's being killed, he's, all, he's got sickness and sores all over him, and people come to comfort him. And those people wax lyrical about how good, good, good God is. And then Job basically says, actually, you're all wrong. God allows this to happen, and God is fully in control. It's not that I've done evil that I deserve this. It's just that God is God, and I must do what I must do, and I have to choose where my loyalties lie. And then God comes out and says, yep, Job is right. All the people who spoke good about me are wrong. So in this situation here, in this incredible story from Exodus, I want to put it to you that we should not as Christians be selective in what we take out of it. We shouldn't airbrush over the fact that this is a very confronting story where God has put the Israelites and the Egyptians into a situation of conflict. Now everybody had their choices along the way. If you read the story carefully, you will see the number of times that Pharaoh decided to harden his own heart before God said, you know what, I'm going to make an example of you. There is no doubt that choices are right there. You will also see that the Israelites had choices and Moses had choices. Everyone had choices along the way as to where they decided to follow and where their loyalties lay. And that is the same choice that we now face today. We are sitting here in church, the unfashionable of the unfashionable here in Australia, narrow-minded though many of us may be, and we have choices too. We have choices about how we engage and show what we believe, which is the love of God as being the superior choice, the superior way to live. Why? Because it brings you into a relationship with God forever. We have to be able to somehow or other show people that the tasty morsels of temptation that are available to them on the one hand are actually nowhere near as good or as enduring as the eternal principles and faithfulness and gentleness and kindness and love that God is offering us on the other. And this is our challenge. So what I saw when I saw that census result of people becoming um, less enamoured with Christianity, less likely to confess, I thought, you know what, I think this is a good thing. I think it's a good thing. And in fact, I think it's a good thing that right now Christianity is completely unfashionable. Why? Because for the people who admit, the people who state, the people who are willing to come out, and say they are Christian, they have to do it by a conscious act of will to go against what is popular. Every single one of you, if you are making a statement by saying, hey, 
I am coming to church to worship the Lord. I am coming to church to fellowship. I am coming to, to share my faith. I want to reach out to my community. You know what? You are going against the grain right now. And I think the thing that is really good about that is that for many decades in our society, Christianity was pushed on people. It was pushed in schools. It was pushed overall. And people would say they were a Christian just to avoid being persecuted by the Christians. But now we have this fantastic situation where the only reason that anybody would say they're a Christian is not to be popular, but it's because they really believe. And I think that that's the exciting thing about what I see in all of you here and online right now. You have declared your faithfulness to the Lord simply by going against the grain. When we reach out and when we share our faith, when we try and reach out to people, we should remember that what we are doing is we're inviting people to actually go against that grain, to go against what is popular. And therefore, we need to remember that it's not going to be an easy decision and that it's going to take love and it's going to take something more than just simply, hey, it's good for you. I think that's what's um, exciting about the potential for these discussions that we're running coming up, these three weeks of rethinking mission. I think the thing that I'm most excited by in this is that we're deciding that we're not going to have regular church services, but we're going to have table discussions. And it's going to be a chance for God to work through every single one of us, for us to come up with a plan that we can put before God about how we reach out to our community, about how we part the Red Sea of opposition that's in front of us. That's the exciting part of it. It's not going to be a top-down driven thing where, you know, the person up the front, the senior pastor or something like that says, hey, we're going to do this exciting plan or we're going to do this and everybody else goes, bah. It's going to be a discussion where all of us get to engage with it. And so I'd invite you, as to do that, to think through all of the things that our community is going through. The Bible records, just as I finish up, that when Jesus looked around in the society of his time, he saw that people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw that in their suffering, they were confused, they were sad, that they didn't know which way to turn. I believe that right now, we are seeing a similar thing in our society today. For all of the wealth, for all of the internet, I mean, even you look at the internet, can you believe such an amazing thing even exists? I mean, you can become an instant expert on anything. How many instant epidemiologists were there in, during the pandemic? Google epidemiologists, what is it? Ooh, wow. Google an opinion. I can parrot that. It was amazing, right? And yet, even there, even there, the reality is that the majority of what goes through the internet is actually bad. It's people attacking each other, it's pornography, it's just mindless mush. Most of it's actually useless because even there, something that is good can be so easily corrupted by people. So people are harassed and helpless. So the challenge I want to put out there for all of us today is simple. 
Let us look at the Scriptures to be inspired by faith and then make decisions about how we apply it going forward. Let's not back away from the fact that God is in control. Let's not back away from the difficult discussions about how God has allowed bad to happen. But embrace it and then still show people all of the love that Jesus has shown us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the lives that you've given us. We, don't, we, can't, we can't even understand life, Father. We can understand atomic structures and chemical compounds and electrical interactions of nerves and cells. But none of that explains life. We can't explain this incredible mystery that we feel, this search, this hunger that we have for eternity in any other way other than by turning to you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the scriptures. The scriptures that show us with incredible clarity that you are in control of all things. The scriptures that show us that even when something bad happens, Father, you are right there. And that, Lord, the scriptures that also show us that ultimately you want every single person to choose what is good and to be with you forever. Help us, Lord, to take this on board, to have confidence as a result, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.